Climate change is water change. Hydropower thus sits at this intersection of climate, energy, and water. We have to evolve our water infrastructure fundamentally to deal with more extreme precipitation events, floods, droughts, etc. And all hydropower projects are also water projects. I am Gia Schneider, co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy. Hi, Gia. Welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're going to get into your company and all about hydropower. But first, I want to talk about your time at MIT. So can you talk about what you did there and how you ended up there? This is a while back now in, in 1995. And I'd applied to a couple different schools, but when I was accepted to MIT, it was kind of clearly the the school of choice. And at that point in time, which probably sounds a little strange for young folks today, I literally had never visited the campus before I showed up there for orientation. So I literally arrived in, you know, September or August and was thrown right in. And I really enjoyed my time there. It was an amazing place for learning and for meeting people who really broadened it was just the exposure to people who are who are frankly like so much smarter than me was just great like there's just so much you get from being able to interact with people who are just like these creative amazing minds i really enjoyed my time what did you study i studied chemical engineering the drivers you know, when I was trying to pick a major for me the chemical engineering choice was really driven by the fact that chemical engineering is a process oriented engineering discipline and a lot of the themes of things that I've been focused on for a long time are process, particularly climate change, is really driven by understanding processes and how we can influence process outcomes by taking certain actions. So when you came to MIT, were you interested in climate? Yes, I had been interested in climate and climate change issues, probably going back to, I don't know, middle school for me. And that really came out of the fact that it was a key issue of concern actually for my father. We kind of grew up learning about climate change and my dad had this little saying where he said climate change is basically hotter, wetter, colder, drier because it's all driven by the water cycle. The heat drives our water cycle and then that has a whole host of impacts across the earth. Did he work in climate too? No, he was a physician actually by training. A public health was his profession. But public health, to a certain extent, is also a systems and process problem, you know, with complex interactions with human behavior and regulations. It actually shares a lot of things in some ways with the challenges that we face in terms of addressing climate. Those were his two passions, public health and environment, climate change. You know, how do we how do we achieve some sort of sustainable balance in how we live with the rest of the biosphere around us? That makes sense. You were really lucky to have that kind of influence growing up. It has definitely shaped my life for, obviously, for for my entire life. It's funny, I remember when I was probably back in, again, elementary or even middle school, I remember thinking that I lived in a really boring time because all of the big adventures and, like, new worlds to explore had already been explored. And actually, of course, with a little bit more wisdom coming from age and perspective, in some ways, actually, we live in what is, I think, some of the most interesting times in terms of just the magnitude of the decision-making in front of us and the impact that has on not just like our own individual lives, but like all of humanity and all of the earth. So it's cool. So you were at MIT, you were studying chemical engineering, and you were interested in climate. Did you 
come out of MIT like ready to go into climate? Or was there ever a time when you were thinking about other paths? By no means did I have this like linear predestined vision of exactly what I was going to do at exactly every point in time. That was definitely not the case. It was more of a guiding kind of passion and interest in it. And actually, I was fortunate to overlap with, I think, in my last year at MIT was when there were some of the first classes, multidisciplinary um, classes that were launched, pulling together energy and engineering and climate. More focused probably on the energy engineering element with a bit of climate injected. And what kind of came out of that was I decided I really wanted to work in the energy industry coming out of school so that I would start to gain an understanding of the more of the practical nuts and bolts of like how, like why our energy system is the way it is. I did a very like preliminary business plan competition effort looking at an energy plan that actually roughly is informed kind of what what we're doing today with Natel. And I remember trying to research like how's power sold and marketed and now you can get that information at the drop of a hat. But at that point, I literally, this is 1999, I was literally like going to Sloan and like looking up, you know, wholesale power market prices and project finance models. And it was not straightforward to get information coming out. I was basically, I'm going to go into the energy industry and start to learn a bit more specifically about what actually drives decision making by utilities and et cetera. So is that what you did? You went to work in the energy industry? Yeah, I, I, I first went to Accenture, actually a big consulting firm as part of their utility practice. And so that gave me exposure to work on at a couple of different utilities on a couple of different projects for those utilities. Most of it, because this was you know 1999, early 2000s, most of this was focused on dealing with the upheaval within the utility industry of that second wave of deregulation that occurred in the late 90s. And so worked on a couple of interesting projects associated with that at several different utilities. And then my last client at Accenture was uh, Constellation Energy, which is actually more of like a energy merchant or independent power producer based in Baltimore. And I got an offer actually to join Constellation's team directly after my consulting project finished. And so I did that. So I then moved to Constellation and was part of their strategy group for about a year or so. And what we did is we basically created structures that would hedge variable load risk around physical generation assets. And to put it in very practical terms, physical load risk is what just happened in in a very extreme way, for example, in ERCOT in Texas several weeks ago, where when temperatures go either very high or very low, that is when you have your biggest demands for power production. And that is also when, if a generator is unable to be online, you can end up as the asset owner in situations that are financially very unfavorable. And so managing variable load risk driven by temperature is a critical element. And we developed some structures that helped to like put some bounds around that, which just gives a little bit more flexibility to the physical plant operators in how they manage those assets. Anyhow, long story, but that was Constellation. And then from there I went to, there are a couple of us developed these strategies and had a bright idea to go start an energy hedge fund. Left, did that very quickly, got an offer to go in-house to credit space because all the banks were piling into commodities at that time frame. Did that for a few years and then left. And then Lehman happened. So everything shut down again in 2007, 2008, and then started Natel in 2009. What a wild ride. Yeah, it's uh, been interesting to see 
the one constant through the entire time, I will say, is that the need to tackle climate change and decarbonize our grid has always been there. It's not that it's growing or changing. Our range of options <laughs> and the range of outcomes available to us for certain magnitudes of, of emissions reductions has narrowed in that time frame. But I've been very fortunate. It's been really interesting to be able to like evolve and see different aspects of of how to tackle transforming our energy infrastructure fundamentally. Well, it sounds like about 10 years after MIT is when you founded Natel. And that 10 years must have been pretty formative in giving you an idea of the energy landscape. And so you were set up, I assume, pretty well to then do what you're doing now. That's exactly correct. The interesting thing, of course, is that in terms of transforming our energy landscape, what we've you know, focused on with Natel was hydropower, which is the world's oldest source of renewable energy in terms of we've had hydropower facilities that have been producing electricity now going back a century or more than a century in some cases. And the reason why hydro was interesting to us as we started the company was because going back actually to you know the thing I've mentioned about my father and climate change, climate change is water change the increased heat that is trapped in our atmosphere as a result of higher concentration of greenhouse gases drives our hydrologic cycle, drives evaporation, precipitation, etc. Hydropower thus sits at this intersection of climate, energy, and water in a way that actually makes hydropower solutions able to be both mitigation, so reducing emissions applications, but also adaptation, because we have to evolve our water infrastructure fundamentally to deal with more extreme precipitation events, floods, droughts, etc. And all hydropower projects are also water projects. It's kind of that intersection that was really interesting to us. It also seemed like a space that was ripe for innovation, in part because it's been around for a very long time. So that was what motivated us to focus in hydro when we started Natel. For people who might be unfamiliar with hydropower, can you just define it? What What is hydropower? So hydropower is the generation of electricity from moving water. And in particular, the most widely deployed form of hydropower is where the energy extracted is from the fact that water that falls from one elevation to a lower elevation creates a, it's not the velocity, it's the fact that that water is moving from one elevation to a lower elevation. So it's a pressure change effectively. And in conventional hydro, the way that historically we have achieved that is by building large dams because a big dam basically creates that height difference. And what we realized is that conventional dams, while they have many great characteristics, they also have some important challenges with respect to their environmental footprint and often their social footprint as well, because they take up space. They've historically sometimes required relocation of local populations. So we started th to think about it and say, okay, was well, there a way for us to rethink hydropower in ways that would not have these negative environmental and social impacts where we could maintain or improve river connectivity, where we wouldn't um, have the same big footprint of the project. And the key realization is that if you move to a more distributed approach for hydropower, that that becomes possible. And an intuitive way to think about it is that a large dam is a bit like jumping off of the roof of a building to get to the ground floor. You take out all that energy in one big step or that potential energy in one big step. And what we do is we walk down the stairs. So it's the same elevation. You can take out the same elevation change, but you're able to take it out in individual steps that are 
now then designed to be in harmony, if you will, or, or you know, in, in alignment with the biological requirements of fish and natural river functions, et cetera. So that was kind of the core, okay, like if we go to a more distributed approach, then we can unlock new hydro without the historical negative impacts. And then the next piece that drove the innovation was, okay, well, how do you make that possible? Because you need then a turbine, a piece of equipment that is able to be installed cost-effectively, that is able to pass fish safely, that's high performance, high efficiency, and that then set the design constraints for the technology that we've worked on and developed. So you mentioned fish a couple times. What's the big deal about fish? Well, fish live in rivers and fish need to move throughout a river system. And fundamentally, when you put a dam or any sort of concrete or civil structure that fully spans the river channel and blocks it, you have created a disconnect in that river system, which for fish then all of a sudden means that fish who can normally swim upstream and downstream can no longer do that unless you create pathways for them to do so. Two things are at play. One is that, uh, and then the second element is that obviously water does move downstream still across the dam and through the powerhouse. So then the next nuance is where fish would go through the powerhouse and through the turbine. Conventional turbines generally aren't that friendly for fish. (laughs) And so as a result, as we have learned that we should protect fish species in rivers um, over time, that has led to increases in requirements for screening so that we put in fine mesh screens to keep fish out of the powerhouse. And then we direct them around the powerhouse in other ways. But those screens are expensive, basically. They're, they're quite expensive. And so we then approach this design problem from a couple of different angles. One is for downstream fish passage, we wanted to have a turbine that would be able to produce power at a high efficiency and do so while passing fish safely up to a certain size. So obviously size matters in terms of the relative size of the turbine versus the fish. And another important part of play is that all hydropower plants will have some sort of a, what's called a trash racks, because you don't want like huge logs going through your powerhouse, for example. And so there's already certain amounts of debris that are going to be screened out. And so our design objective was any fish that would get through a normal trash rack could go safely through the turbine and any fish that would be, you know, big enough to not go through the trash rack would be able to go around in a bypass around the plant. What kind of fish are too big? If you have fish that are over like 25, 30, you know, inches, depends on the form factor. That's it's where you can get down in the weeds really quickly because for example, on the East Coast where eel, for example, are a species of prime importance, eel are very long but they're skinny. And so in general, most eel will be able to go through most trash racks. And so there it's not as much the length of the fish as it is, it's a skinny fish and we wanna be able to pass these long skinny form factors safely through our turbines. On the West Coast, it's also on the East Coast as well. Salmon, we have salmon both on in the Atlantic and Pacific. There we wanna be able to pass younger fish, juvenile fish through the turbine safely, but larger, you know, more adult fish, once they start to get up to a, generally like 30 inches or so. Like once you get to a certain size, you're you're dealing with fish screens where those fish would generally not be able to go through the trash racks and then those fish would go around through a bypass. So the turbines have to be customized for their location. Yeah, historically turbines have been designed very much customized exactly to the location. Our approach was to 
create standardized designs that come in several standard turbine diameters. So size of turbine, it's kind of like what happens in wind, right? So you have different sizes of wind turbines and then wind turbine manufacturers make many of those same sizes and then developers choose to deploy certain combinations of those sizes based on what makes sense for their project. And that's very much the approach we've taken. So you're able to create customization based on the site characteristics, but you're doing so by putting together modular building blocks where each modular building block has been designed to meet the stringent criteria for both high performance from a power perspective, but also high performance for fish. Right. You have this thing called Restoration Hydro, which seems to be partly this fish passing hardware and maybe something else. Can you talk about that? So Restoration Hydro is our overall design philosophy that incorporates our fish safe turbine with some innovative analytics that combines satellite imagery and machine learning and weather data to provide more accurate information about water flow through a watershed. And we put these together, those two innovations, more on the technology side, with proven environmental and civil engineering techniques that have been deployed over the last decade and a half in dam removals and river restoration projects. And we put all of that together into a design approach that enables us to now design distributed hydropower projects that have multiple individual plants on a river where each individual plant maintains or improves the connectivity for fish and sediment and water and people to move upstream and downstream around each plant. We integrate then all of those plants together into a virtual power plant framework, leveraging a lot of the amazing work that's happened on distributed energy resource management. In some cases now, we're also looking at hybridizing in batteries or solar as well, because at the end of the day, if you now have energy infrastructure, you're interconnecting to the grid, you're managing the whole thing with a you know computer system that understands I've got you know these distributed elements to manage. If there's market value, it's pretty natural to think about, okay, I can put a little bit more solar here and I can put some batteries there and then integrate the whole thing as a as an integrated VPP or virtual power plant. So that overall is restoration hydro. The core differentiator from a hydropower development perspective is that restoration hydro is grounded in a philosophical approach, which is that we prioritize river function along with the reliable renewable energy generation aspect. You guys are really focused on the ecological concerns that hydropower has. Is that pretty unique or is that a growing concern with with all hydro now? It's increasingly a growing concern. For example, the International Energy Agency last year called out a couple points. One is hydropower globally. We've been adding about 20 gigawatts a year on average, roughly each year for the last five years or so but that we really need to double that if we're going to be able to meet Paris climate objectives. And again, this is all kind of a very global analysis, but at the end of the day, hydropower has very attractive grid reliability characteristics. It can be co-dispatched or can be dispatched as a load following, load balancing resource, which helps then integrate wind and solar um, into the grid. And so the IEA called out like that hydro has these really great characteristics as a generation resource, how do we get more hydro more quickly? And at the same time, they also acknowledged in that same report that because of the environmental and social impacts that can come with large dams, we really need to figure out 
new ways of building hydro in a more distributed manner that don't require building these massive dams and, and massive civil infrastructure projects for several reasons. One is the environmental impact and another is just time frame involved. It can take you know 10 years to undertake a new large dam build. And so a more distributed approach allows us to build things more quickly, right? So we don't, we can, you know, build each step in the cascade in a shorter time period so that, that we're getting power today, getting power next year, year after that, year after that, we don't have to wait 10 years for the whole thing to be done. So this basically has been identified as an area of need in the hydropower industry by the IEA in a report last year. So you mentioned reliability and, and the blackouts. How does hydro compare to maybe things like fossil fuels and then maybe other renewable technologies like solar and wind in terms of reliability on the grid? Again, reliability, when you start to dig into the elements of what makes a reliable grid, becomes more complex than just the simple word reliability. Hydropower does several things that are very useful. So one important characteristic is grid frequency. All of our devices are designed to operate with a frequency at either 50 or 60 hertz for historical reasons, depending on where you are in the world. And What that means is that the traditional role that's played by a grid operator is to balance demand with generation to ensure that we keep the frequency of the overall grid in a narrow band around 50 or 60 hertz. What happened in ERCOT, for example, a couple weeks ago, was that we had a bunch of generation offline, demand started to spike, increase because of the cold, people were turning on their heaters, and as that demand spiked, that basically dropped the frequency on the grid. And once that frequency drops below a certain threshold, other generation sources who are connected to the grid will start to be kicked offline. And that's what leads to this case of a rolling blackout where basically your grid is now not in balance and generators start tripping offline, which makes the problem worse. And so what the grid operator does to get ahead of that is they'll go and they'll just start shutting people off, cutting off electricity to a bunch of parts of the grid so that they can get ahead of this and bring things back into balance. What hydro does is because hydropower has a generation profile where I know how much water I have in my immediate pond or reservoir, And I also know what my flow is going to be coming continuously because water flow is like fuel for a hydropower facility. Hydro is in some ways like, because I have this good predictability of what my fuel will be basically, certainly over the next hour, over the next eight hours, over the next several days, and often over the next several weeks. That allows every hydropower operator to provide a much more firm estimate of power generation in that time window of the next hour, the next several hours, the next day, the next week, et cetera. And that's different than wind and solar. I know I have sun every day. (laughs) And in many cases, we can also predict wind patterns. The forecasting has gotten a lot better for both wind and solar. But the ability to have specificity around that fuel supply over a longer tenor is somewhat unique to hydropower. And then we layer on top of that the ability to store, because with water, stored, I can then basically have a battery built into my hydropower facility because I have a bit of of stored water at each point at each hydropower plant. Those are the two, two ways in which hydro was able to bring kind of more flexibility and dispatch to the grid. And then interestingly, now what we're seeing more and more 
is that hydro is very well suited to leverage advances, for example, in batteries, to put batteries, you know, co-located alongside a hydro facility. And by doing so, we can then optimize the charge discharge cycle for the battery to maximize battery life. Because I have kind of a bit of a battery in the hydro, and then I've got my, my chemical battery as well. And, and by optimizing the two together, I can just get the best value out of my battery spend, basically, while providing the maximum possible in terms of grid reliability services. So it sounds like they're all really complementary and they all work really well together, like these puzzle pieces. What right now is the limiting factor in any of them? Like, is there is there some kind of technology that's maybe missing in batteries that if you just unlocked that, it would make hydro so much more efficient or cost-effective or something? I actually think we have a lot of the pieces now in front of us. And the challenge is much more about systems integration from a technical perspective and basically finding the lowest cost, you know, optimized integration for different types of applications that put these pieces together in the in the lowest cost way. And then the other challenge, which is constant in all things energy, is policy, frankly. At the end of the day, you know, it's not enough to have have a awesome piece of technology. That technology has to be deployed in projects. Projects require approvals. They have to, you know, go through permitting processes. We have to then obviously also finance them. From where we are today to where we want to go in terms of scaling, a lot of our focus now is it's not that we've solved every problem possible on the technology front. There's always more things to refine and evolve and improve. But I think as we look forward over the next several years, it's really about finding ways to put the elements together, do the systems integration problem as efficiently as possible, and then work with policymakers and regulators to understand where maybe some of our existing regulations might be outdated and not in line with both the impacts and benefits of deploying these solutions. Uh, And then obviously with the finance industry to understand how these projects, because they do, hydropower projects do look a little different than wind and solar. They're very long lived assets. Um, You know, these are assets that can typically live for 40, 50 years, if not more. And so there's some education on that front as well. And those pieces are critical. So unlocking on policy and unlocking on the finance, both are going to be the kind of really critical things that help drive scale. Which countries are really leading in hydro right now? So Europe actually has has a very large base of existing installed hydropower and has frankly, I think, been one of the leaders in the world on investing in their existing hydropower fleet over the last decade or so to convert their existing hydropower fleet to be very much a load following and balancing resource. That's investments in controls, um, some of it's in specific upgrades to older turbines. And the benefit of that is that Europe has been able to now achieve very high integration of wind and solar, so of intermittent renewables, without much battery basically. Like Europe has achieved 40% in some cases plus integration of wind and solar, and it's all come on the back of hydropower. You know, the next wave, of course, is now, okay, how do we get some additional hydro? How do we integrate batteries more? I think that's the next step really that we're looking at in Europe. I think in the U.S., we're starting to figure that out, and there's a lot of opportunity. We've got about 100 gigawatts of existing hydro in the U.S. We could double that roughly with new technologies such as what we're developing. So I think there's a huge amount of opportunity here now to apply 
some of those lessons learned, some new tech, and help us move more quickly on a transition to a zero carbon grid. So these dams, like you said, are long-lived assets. They stick around for a long time. How resilient are they or adaptable are they to climate change? What happens when the river flow starts to change because of less water or more water? Can you adapt? Can you move it? What do you do? That is a core and hard question or challenge to address. In the U.S., for example, we have over 90,000 existing dams across the U.S. A small percentage, something like less than 2% of those, are hydropower facilities. Most of them are just there for purposes of flood control, water storage, navigation. And a lot of them are quite old and precisely to the point of, for example, the expectation of what a flood, a 10-year or 100-year flood looks like changes. Structures that used to be perfectly okay and safe are now no longer okay and safe because what used to be considered a 100-year flood is now actually happening every couple years. And when that happens, you really do have to make make upgrades in, in this water infrastructure. And so, so the answer is that's hard to do. It's not easy. And it does require investment in infrastructure. It's kind of in line with a lot of the things that the Biden administration is talking about right now with respect to the, frankly, massive amount of investment we need to make in all sorts of infrastructure in this country so that we will be prepared to be productive or enabled to be productive going forward. And that's going to involve things like dam removal. So there are a lot of dams that are old, outdated, no longer serve their purpose. And for those, we're looking actively at ways in which we can remove those structures or reconfigure those structures, apply some restoration hydro so that we're able to restore the watershed and generate new reliable renewable energy. In other cases, the structures themselves are okay. And we're looking at them to say, okay, can we make some upgrades that would make them more robust for the future? particularly for the non-power locks and dams, for example, let's put some hydro on them so that they can become part of the generation solution as well. There's a lot of work to do. That's for sure. Yeah, it sounds like it. So on that note, what are you working on now? What are you working on next? What's, what's coming? Last year, we spent quite a bit of time in R&D, you know, probably the first eight years of our existence were deep in R&D on hardware um, and software. And then really 2019 for us was a kind of product release year, we got our first projects installed. And then last year, 2020, was a big step forward for us. We installed our first project using our megawatt class turbine. We were able to do in-field fish passage testing that showed 100% safe passage actually of up to like 15 inch rainbow trout through that megawatt class turbine uh, in the field uh, with some tests run by Pacific Northwest National Lab. And so that set us up now. We've got a couple projects that we're working on here in the U.S. that will be coming online um, over the next 12 to 18 months on the East Coast, primarily. We just signed our first deal with a utility in Austria. So we'll have our first project in the EU online by the end of this year. And we're closing in on actually our first project deal with a developer who's doing hydro-backed microgrids in a couple countries in Africa pretty cool, like hybridization, again, battery, solar, and hydro. And if all goes well, they'll have that first project in, I would say, probably early next year, about 12 months out from now. So we've got a number of installations all moving over the next 12 to 18 months. We'll see several more projects come online here in the U.S., in Europe, and hopefully this first one in Africa. Well, Gia, this has been great. Uh, We covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate your time. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure.